This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss traditional formulations that combine Western and Eastern remedies with nutraceutical expert, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn how to balance your digital diet with Silicon Valley expat, Sean Fink. We'll talk about the top garden design tips for 2023 with master organic gardener, Melissa Cameron. And lastly, we'll find out about foodpreneurship with foodpreneur, Janice Bartley. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. A new study out of the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center suggests that some patients diagnosed with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, an incurable condition that robs patients of the ability to control their behavior and cope with daily living, may instead have a cerebral spinal fluid leak, which is often treatable. Cerebrospinal fluid circulates in and around the brain and spinal cord to help cushion them from injury. When this fluid leaks into the body, the brain can sag, causing dementia symptoms. Many patients with brain sagging, which can be detected through an MRI, go undiagnosed. Can something as simple as a cup of coffee with milk have anti-inflammatory effect in humans? Apparently so, according to a new study out of the University of Copenhagen. A combination of proteins and antioxidants doubles the anti-inflammatory properties in immune cells. Antioxidants, known as polyphenols, are found in humans, plants, fruits, and vegetables. Polyphenols are known to be healthy for humans as they help reduce oxidative stress in the body that gives rise to inflammation. But much remains unknown about polyphenols. Relatively few studies have investigated what happens when they react with other molecules, such as proteins mixed into foods that we then consume. The study investigated how polyphenols behave when combined with amino acids, the building blocks of proteins. Because humans do not absorb that bunch polyphenol, many researchers are studying how to encapsulate polyphenols in protein structures which improve their absorption in the body. This strategy has led to the advantage of enhancing anti-inflammatory effects of the polyphenols. Scientists have worked out why common antidepressants cause around half of the users to feel emotionally blunted. The study, published out of the University of Cambridge, shows that the drugs affect reinforcement learning, an important behavioral process that allows us to learn from our actions and our environment. Said lead scientist Professor Barbara Sahakian, in a way, this may be in part how they work. They take away some of the emotional pain that people who experience depression feel, but unfortunately, it seems that they also take away some of the enjoyment. From our study, we can now see that this is because they become less sensitive to rewards, which provide important feedback. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. 
formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular guest on the show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? It's always great to be back, Jamie. Very good, thank you. It's cold. It is. It's cold. It's cold. You've accumulated a lot of experience over the last 30 years in the business, the natural supplement industry, and your products are unique in that you combine ingredients from both Western and Eastern remedies. So you're not a traditional herbalist. You're more into nutraceutical and blended or complexes, right? Yeah. You know, it's good we're talking about this in a way because... You know, as you know, we've been around for a while. I mean, I think what, this year is with 30 years in business. Yep. Congratulations. And the fact that we're still here after 30 years means that, you know, we're probably doing something right. Yep. But it's interesting. When we first started, the nutraceutical industry was was basically the Wild West. I remember those days. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we started, I thought, you know what? I should be the voice of sanity in this industry. And by that I meant, you know, anything that we put out should at least have some evidence of efficacy. Right? Yep. And so with that in mind, that's how I started. I went to the, the scientific literature that was published, right? And from the scientific literature that was published, we knew certain things worked, certain things didn't work. We also looked at some of the studies and how well the studies were, etc. before we even thought of using some of these ingredients. But one of the things that we have always looked at is Chinese herbs. Not because my last name is Chang and I have a Chinese extraction, right. okay? Yeah. I was born in Trinidad, raised in Trinidad, right? So I was very far from traditional Chinese medicine. But one thing, with a PhD under my belt, when I looked at the data, I know just a lot of studies on Chinese herbs, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of them were published in Chinese. There's no more English publication with Chinese herbs, but a lot of them were published in Chinese and... Fortunately, living in Toronto, there were a lot of Chinese expats who can translate some of these studies into English, so which I can evaluate. Hmm. Right now, what's interesting again? Chinese herbs have been around for a long, long time, and because they've been around for a long, long time, there's a lot of tried and true herbs out there. Right, so hmm. there's a lot of exper- I call it experimentation by the masses. Okay. Yep. But because there's some publications on top of that, it made it more palatable for me to to look at Chinese herbs as far as efficacy is concerned. And you know what? Chinese herbal medicine is still being used today. They've been around for a long time. But last but not least, the thing about herbs, I know for a fact herbs contain compounds which have medicinal activity in the body. So that's why we focused a lot of our formulas on the Chinese herbs because we were looking at efficacy. That's why people, when they use um, our products, they find them very efficacious. So from your perspective, like going back to when you first entered the industry, 
Did you come at it from an Eastern perspective first and then Western, or did it work in De- reverse? Definitely not from an Eastern um, point of view, because, you know, if you look at it from the Chinese herbal medicine, you know, they, they talk about things like yin and yang, right. hot and cold. That had no meaning to me whatsoever. I based it on the fact that when I read the publications, it says this thing has an anti-inflammatory effect, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Or this thing broke up mucus, right? So these, or this thing can boost the immune system by cranking out more white blood cells or making natural killer cells more have higher activity, right? These are some. This is science. This is published. It's not me pulling it out of the air type of thing, right? So those are some of the basis of the things that I use. And since, uh, you know, with a PhD and a background in, in physiology, which is basically medicine, right, the basic actions of some of these things is, is something that you knew about. So this is how we approach these particular products. Still, I, you know, you've come on the show for a while. I know a lot of, you know, everybody's background plays into their worldview and how they perceive the world around them. And I know your experience, for example, with your grandmother growing up on the islands, you know, like you bring that to the table too, don't you? Yeah, I do bring that to the table. But one thing, when we started the business, one thing, yes, it's important to be able to sell stuff, but I wanted to sell things which were efficacious. And back when we started, if I looked around, my compatriots who were around, very few people had any, what I call, scientific background whatsoever. Right. So all, yeah. A lot of these people were, were basically marketing people, for want of a better way of saying this. Yep. Right? So when we approach it from a scientific point of view, that was important to me. I had to bring some science to the industry. And you know what? Much as you know, people were bad-mouthing the industry back then, meaning that oh, what's in a capsule, one of the labels not in a capsule. I mean, the Canadian government, Health Canada, dragged us to the table, dragged the industry to the table by regulating the industry. And that has made a huge difference in the quality of the stuff that's being produced today. And to the point today where everybody who is a manufacturer has to have something called a site license. Every product that is sold in Canada is regulated by Health Canada, meaning they bless the formula, you have things in place to make sure what's on the label is in the capsule, etc. We're very regulated. As of 2004, it is a very regulated industry. So when I hear sometimes people saying, oh, got to be careful about supplements, etc., what sometimes on the label is not in the bottle, those days have come and gone, in all fairness, in Canada. At least I can say in Canada. I can't speak about the rest of the world. But I can definitely speak for Canada. I started in the industry. I started publishing in 2007. And at that point, like it was in the midst of the transition from where people really, you called it the Wild West. That's exactly what it was. People were making claims about the efficacies of of whatever it was they were peddling versus those who understood that with the credibility that comes with regulation, there's actually growth potential and a better potential to help people. It was almost like a a different political philosophy. But to sort of turn the question around, did you find that, you know, because you were working with traditional Chinese herbs, at least in part for your formulations, that the new paradigm, the regulations were actually 
workable? Like, was it a round peg into a square hole or, or vice versa? Do you know what I mean? It's always a wrong peg into a square hole. But, you know, one of the things that nice and wrong pegs in a square hole, if you have a sharp knife, you can slice, <laughs> the, you can slice yeah. the peg and shape it to get into the hole. And, you know, nothing is perfect from day one. Right. Okay. But there is an energy in the regulations that will help make some of these things happen. Okay, so I mean, there's still lots of stuff that they probably would never let me sell, which is fair enough. Right. Okay, but there is a lot of things that they do allow you to sell and allow you to promote. So you know, it's, it's a bit of everything, and you know, and I don't want to go back ever want our industry to go back into the wild west where, right, of course uh, not. Whatever we we dream up tomorrow, we can make all sorts of ridiculous claims and, and sell it. You know what I mean? That does no good for anybody. You were talking before about some of the studies which existed but were in, in Chinese language. So, like, having dealt with government before in, in past incarnations as, as a lawyer, but even today as a publisher, I know that, you know, sometimes there's a rigidity or sort of a formulaic approach. Uh, so when I was talking about the, like, the square peg, round hole, or vice versa, like, was it a challenge for you to try and promote the efficacies of these, uh, you oh, know, that, Eastern that, herbs? There's, there's a challenge for promoting the efficacy. But by the same token, the regulations have allowed us, there is a lot of information out there already that's already published in English. Right. So we may not make certain, we may not be allowed to make medical claims, but there's a lot of what I call structure function claims that we can make. Right. right? And I don't even want to just keep this only to our um, Chinese herbs, but I mean, I mean, supplements in general, things like vitamins, minerals, right? Calcium, magnesium, vitamin D, all those type of things that most people know about, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with the regulations, there are things out there that basically to ensure the quality of the raw materials that we're using, right? Um, we're supposed to check all those things. Yes. Right. And and there should be tests in place to allow you to check the quality of all these things. And that's come a long way. Right. So let's talk about the testing and, and quality standards at your company. Like I, I know you're a manufacturer. So so what are some of the things that you need well, to do? In one order- of the things that we do, I mean, we use a lot of herbs in our products. Sure. And one of the biggest downside of a lot of herbs is, is that sometimes the herbs you get are in a powdered form. Right. And if the herbs are in a powdered form, you know, one powder looks as good as another powder. Right. You taste it, you smell it, right? You can, sometimes if the herbs are different, you, you can taste and smell the difference, right? But many times, you know, if it's a blend, it's very difficult to tell. Or sometimes if somebody adds or adulterates one of the herbs, it's very difficult to tell, right? For mm-hmm. example, if I have ginseng root and I make it 50% ginseng and 50% sawdust, well, I can taste ginseng, I can smell ginseng, I just don't know it's 50% sawdust. However, there are chemical tests that we can use. We have something called a high-pressure liquid chromatography, or HPLC machine, right? And basically what that will do is if, if you run it through the HPLC, each herb has a unique fingerprint, mm-hmm. okay? And if it's adulterated, the unique fingerprint will change. And if, if it changes, we know somebody has added something to it. So we can tell purity of the herb. Back in the day when we first started, we didn't have the HPLC. So what we did, we made sure we bought the herbs in a whole form, uncut whole form. So that way, for example, I'll use ginseng root again just because everybody knows ginseng. Right. You take the root, it looks like a ginseng root. 
smells like a ginseng root. It tastes like a ginseng root. If you add a, a wooden broomstick handle in with a mix, you can tell it from a mile off just because it looks different, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, a lot of the herbs, we would do things like that. So you can tell t- by organoleptics, right? But nowadays, we use our, our high-pressure chromatography, t- and we've built up a database of all the different herbs that we use. So whenever we get raw material coming in, we know uh, the quality of it right from the get-go. We, we have a way of identifying these herbs. So it's, so it's very difficult for anyone to slip anything in. Not that anybody does that on purpose, but, right. you, you know, when, when people plant things, you know, or, or you collect it from, say, wild harvested, right, sometimes other things slip in by accident. Of course. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit. Are you an advocate of single-ingredient type remedies or or sort of blended remedies? It's, it's like anything else. Most of us take a lot of these remedies for general health and well-being. Right. But unfortunately, a lot of us are looking for what I call the magic bullet. And the magic bullet concept comes from modern pharmaceutical, the way it's manufactured, right? For example, if you have high blood pressure, they just want to give you one pill. Right. Or if, you're, if your knee hurts, They'll give you one painkiller, so they'll give you either an aspirin tablet, ibuprofen tablet, you know, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But each of these single-ingredient tablets have its high risk, meaning that the the safety margins are thin, right? It would be much easier if you were to, say, take three different painkillers, put it into one pill, and use less amounts of each of them, so you increase the safety margin. Right. Mm-hmm. So we tend to use a lot more. With that in mind, we tend to use a lot more herbs that have similar effects together. So they ha- we get a, what I call a synergistic effect without even getting close to what I call tolerance levels or safety margins. Secondly, I don't believe in a single magic bullet. Right. For example, a lot of us, as we get older, we have arthritis or, or knee pain. Okay. So one of the things is that. Back into the people just say, glucosamine. Well, glucosamine by itself isn't going to do much for your pain because your pain is caused by inflammation. So whatever joint product you take for that, you should have some anti-inflammatory herbs in there. So the anti-inflammatory will help control the pain. And again, it'll help with with the healing process or at least help control the pain. Okay. Then you add your structural components, which is like your collagens, right, your glucosamines, etc., in there. So these are your structural components to help you rebuild the integrity of the joint. Now, you know as well as I do, as we get older, things don't work the same way, right? Yep. No matter how much of this you take or how much of that you take, it's not going to be, you're not going to have the needs of a 20-year-old when you're pushing 70, Right? But what you try to do with supplements is just try to delay as long as possible the onset of these crippling issues, such like your arthritis is so bad, you, you can't even crawl out of bed. Right? Yep. So this is one of the rules, some of the rules of supplements. But unfortunately, some people want to take some of these things for curative issues, and sometimes it doesn't cure. I mean, even medicines don't cure. Some medicines that they're just to control the symptoms, and you get a few extra good years out of your life because of that. Sound advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me on board again as usual. It's always been a pleasure. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to balance your digital diet on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? 
Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Alex Fink is a tech executive, Silicon Valley expat, and the founder and CEO of The Other Web. The Other Web is a new information center platform that allows people to consume high-quality information without junk, clickbait, eye-catchers, link farms, partisan echo chambers, and other forms of digital noise. After a 15-year career in Silicon Valley as a tech executive in a variety of startups, Alex decided that instead of contributing to the social dilemma, a problem created by Silicon Valley with the advent of social media in which clickbait is incentivized, he would rather build the solution using their own methods. He moved to Austin, rolled up his sleeves, and a few years later, the other web was born. Welcome to the show, Alex. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing well, but I think there's a problem that, you know, it's bad in Canada, it's bad in the United States, and that is sort of this advent of content where opinion and fact are conflated and people just don't know what's real anymore. Why do you think fake news is so prevalent? So I think you just mentioned two different problems, right? Uh, conflating opinion and fact is definitely a problem. And I think the reason it's done is that opinion generates stronger emotions in the reader and gets the reader to click on more things, right? Fake news is prevalent mostly, again, because it is much easier to create a fake story than it is to source a real one. And if you are rewarded just by clicks and views, then you would rather do, as a journalist or as an editor, you would rather do the thing that requires less effort to generate the same outcome. Looking at it from an audience perspective, though, I think actually those two concepts are tied together. I think it's gotten to the point now where people actually don't know the difference between fact and opinion, and therefore it is much easier for the clickbait to prevail because there's no sense of objective truth anymore. That's my take on it. I will, yeah, I will superimpose another issue on this, which is just the fact that outlets have been facing this incentive of just chasing clicks and views created so much junk in the system that users are spending most of their mental energy just trying to filter out the obvious junk. And it leaves a lot less bandwidth for critical thinking and for actually evaluating an argument on the merits and trying to figure out whether it's true or false. I've been reading Google News religiously to sort of know what the competition is doing. And occasionally you get an article from CNN titled, Stop What You're Doing and Watch This Elephant Play With Bubbles. And if our ecosystem is filled with this, then we are constantly essentially staying in what Daniel Kahneman would call system one, like the really superficial, quick decision filtering. And you can't expect people to be critical thinkers if they're just bombarded with junk holding. But I think we've actually trained people not to be critical thinkers, period. I think when people are looking at news now, they're actually trying to find information that coincides with their worldview, as opposed to being educated with something that maybe would upset them because it isn't what they believe. That is true as well, but you're seeing both trends, right? Typically, when you have a big trend, you also see a counter trend. So you have the TikTokization of information into shorter, more extreme emotion-evoking elements. And then you suddenly see podcasts doing the exact opposite and going from one hour to two hours to three hours to seven hours in-depth conversations about philosophy. Right? And so I don't 
think that people's training is that rigid and that the moment you change the ecosystem and the incentives in it, you will find out that people are much more rational than they seemed five minutes ago. People adapt pretty quickly to what is being thrown at them. Okay, so if that's true then, I'm not sure I agree with you on that point. I think we're being socialized differently. So I think you've developed something called a nutritional label for social media. Can you tell me how that works and how that might solve the problem? So this started as a nutritional label. Now it's more of an information platform that actually aggregates all the information and then filters the junk out. But the idea behind the nutrition label was pretty simple. If you pick up food package in a grocery store somewhere, it would typically have some nutrition facts, things that people generally agree with, that give you some additional information to evaluate whether you want to consume this or not. It would have the amount of protein, the amount of trans fat, the amount of any other substance that can be measured objectively. So we tried to create the same thing with regards to written articles by identifying small elements that are well-defined, like is this an attention-grabbing headline? Or is this written in subjective language with a lot of loud adjectives? And we identify these small elements. We try to first get a bunch of people to agree on what those are, and then train an AI model to basically do what the people do when they try to evaluate this element. So right now we have about 20 different AI models, each one centered on one small, well-defined element of quality. And then we have our own logic, which is evolving all the time, on how to combine those into a single aggregate score. And we've opened up those models for public review, for audit, for comments. But obviously we cannot claim that they are all objectively correct. We're just trying to make sure they are conforming to people's intuition on what constitutes quality. Okay, so with the nutrition label for food, it's actually measuring something scientifically like fat content or salt or sugar. But, you know, what you're doing is a little bit different in that there is more of a subjective element. So so what is it that you're actually measuring that would objectively identify an article, for example, as being clickbait? Like for you, what's the indicia? Well, so specifically clickbait, the way that we define it is a, a headline that does not quite match the content of the article. Right. So the headline is something different than the summary of the article. Okay. And B, the headline is written in a way that attracts attention. And so I agree with you that it's not as objectively defined as the amount of protein and food stuff, but it is something that people generally agree on. If you ask 10 people about the same headline, does this look like clickbait? Generally speaking, they will all agree. And if they don't, then obviously we have to narrow down what it is that we are detecting. We are trying to make each element as small as possible until people agree. So that's what we are relying on. But of course, if the publicly acceptable definition of clickbait changes over time, we'll have to adjust our model. Okay. And how is technology helping you achieve this goal? So you mentioned the AI engines. Is that the key piece of the puzzle or is there more to it? It's not a key. It's a tool that we have to use to make the system scale. So human editors have a few shortcomings. First of all, they cannot go through an unlimited amount of articles. Their time is limited and it takes them a a long time to handle each one. And second of all, when they make a decision, it's not entirely transparent whether they were objective, whether they were in their normal mood, or did they have a bad day, etc. Right. Right. So AI has the advantage of being almost as good as a human, but also being completely scalable and completely open to the public. So if it makes a mistake and someone complains, we know how to fix it, and we know how to show the fix to the public. Okay. Are there other ways in which technology can help to fight fake news, or is that primarily 
the tool because it can scale and you know deal with the volume of news that's out there? I think it has to be the first tool because before you can try to improve something, you have to learn how to measure it. And so if our goal is to create incentives for creating better quality information, first of all, we have to find a way to measure and quantify quality. But by itself, it cannot be a fix. It is just a tool. The fix has to be the creation of some incentives to create better content. So in our mind, if content is mostly monetized using ads, and ads mostly pay per click or per view, there has to be something else in the payout formula other than number of clicks times the cost per click. There has to be a quality score in there somewhere. Right now, what we're doing is basically a rough quality score, which means if it's bad, we don't show it on the platform at all, and this lowers the distribution of the person who created it. But our hope is that one day, the actual ad networks will incorporate some sort of quality score. So the ad would pay a different amount based on what content it appeared on. Well, that's always been the difficulty with the clickbait, right? Like if you're paying for clicks, it's so sort of rudimentary, but it doesn't speak to the quality of the clicks that you're getting, right? So you drive somebody to a website or, you, or somebody's on there and actually viewing the ad that's attached to the article, but we still don't know whether or not they're going to act, whether there's a call to action or whether or not it's an, it is effective as advertising, particularly when everybody's inundated with it day in, day out. Like, that's always been curious to me, why the clicks are so valuable when it's not clear to me that they're actually generating valuable sales, for example. But there's actually pretty good ways to track whether or not they are generating sales. So I think the bad situation is clickbait works. It actually does generate better sales. The question is at what cost? It essentially creates pollution throughout the entire system. Right. If you imagine a food analogy, it would be like trying to sell food by the calorie to maximize the number of calories that you sell. Right. Maybe it will work for a while under some conditions, right. but it will create a very unhealthy population over time. Yeah, but neither the consumer of the clicks or the people generating the clicks particularly care because it's generating the results they want. I guess my point is, you're trying to create a new social paradigm that negates the value of those clicks. I wonder if it has to be legislated or whether you can actually change behavior by presenting a more objective option and creating this dichotomy of like valuable news versus unvaluable news. Do you know what I mean? I think first we need to affect consumer behavior. Because right. Whether or not this becomes legislation, first of all, we need to show that some portion of the population cares about what they put in their brain. Right. So, again, to use the food analogy here, you can think about organic food. Yep. The reason you find organic food, even in Walmart, is, first of all, some farmers markets or Whole Foods or other higher quality chains show to the world that people are willing to pay for organic. Right. And so we're trying to do the same thing. First, create one platform that right now we have about 90,000 active users, but it's growing pretty quickly. Right. Once we get to a substantial number of users, that is a signal to the world that people care and advertisers should care, content creators should care, distributors of content like search engines and social media should start caring. Otherwise, they will be penalized for not having those quality filters on. I hope you're right. I think we're going to create a situation where there are some that do care, but most don't. But even if it's just a small minority who do care, I think it's important enough. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Alex Fink. For more discussions and articles about health and wellness, be sure to visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss top garden design tips on The Tonic. 
Are you stressed out, feeling down, having trouble sleeping? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplements to help take the edge off, relax, enhance your mood, and sleep better. Discover de-stress, Merry Mind Omega, and Sleep 8. Natural ingredients and guaranteed purity for a better day and a restful night. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed, a garden education and design company. She's been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Florit, and Toronto Life, and is a regular garden contributor for Canadian Vegan Magazine. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, she's the co-founder of the Abermory Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. And for more information about Melissa and her good work, go to thegoodseedgarden.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. So a garden design. You know, lots of people want to make their outdoors beautiful because we're spending more time at home, but they may be good tactical thinkers. This is more strategy. This is more big picture thinking. And I think we could use your advice as a professional. You up for the task? I'm ready to go. Okay. So what questions should we be asking ourselves ahead of designing our 2023 gardens? Wow. Okay. So I would like, with your permission, to Mm -hmm. break this topic down into two categories. Sure. And it's going to be a bit of a long format answer for you today because I think it's a really, really great question. So asking yourself some hard questions ahead of the gardening season is really going to help you shape your design and also will impact the satisfaction the garden will give you this coming season. Yep. So with that said, let's do some garden therapy. The first thing I want our listeners to do is to ask themselves some more abstract questions. Yep. For instance, what need do I want my garden to fulfill? And that kind of seems like a crazy question, but it's important. Is it an emotional need, a practical need, a therapeutic need, an aesthetic need? And, you know, really what we're getting into is what do you want to feel when you step into your garden? Yeah. Secondly, and this one I find a lot in my professional work, what garden baggage are you bringing with you into this season? (laughs) So are you still miffed about a plant that failed from last year? Are you frustrated with an aspect of your current garden design? Did you bite off more than was reasonable last season and feel overwhelmed at the garden work? I think the other one we should really talk about is that comparison is the thief of joy. Are you comparing your garden to your neighbors, to something you saw on social media, and are you feeling sort of less than? Yeah. Can I add one? Yeah. I think how much time do you have and what are your plans for the season? Like, are you going away for a chunk of time? How much time do you want to spend working the garden? Because some people have more time than others, right? Right. And so that's the second part of this answer to this question is let's now like ask ourselves those practical questions. Yeah. And some of those things really, really matter to think about at the beginning of the season before you start implementing any aspect of a garden design. So As you said, how much time do you realistically want to spend tending your garden? What critters are present in your ecosystem? What's your budget? Does your soil desperately need rehabilitation? And is your garden need, like, is it getting enough light? Are there trees that are now overgrown and coming in that you need to prune? 
all of this we need to reflect on before we start the garden design process. Yep. I've got bigger issues too. Like I've got a dead tree that has to be dealt with somehow, which is a totally different issue. So like sometimes you have problems that you have to sort of get in front of as well, right? Totally. And I think that by spending the time now when we're in the midst of winter and the depths of the misery of the cold, addressing it now or making a plan now will make you feel so much more calm and empowered once the weather turns nice. Yeah. Okay. So I have my own ideas, but you're the expert. What do you think makes good garden design? Yeah, I think good garden design is really just a marriage of form and function. So you have to have a good grasp on the parameters of your space, as we talked about, in order to choose plants that will thrive. And as we said, you also have to be really honest with the time you want to commit to your garden so that you're choosing plants that serve not only your garden conditions, but your ability to be present in the garden. And I would also say good design will bring texture, functionality, longevity, And in the case of edible garden, good design means that you're planting for the changing temperatures over the season and planting plants that satisfy your palate. If you've got perennial flower gardens, like many of us do, blooms that happen happen over different times of the season and keep your eye sort of engaged in the peas make for a really great garden design. And I think that we all have to remember that good design can happen in any sized garden and on any budget. Yeah. One problem I had when I was starting out, because I'm sort of self-taught, and this is less to do with sort of, you know, the fruits and vegetables and the flowers, but the plants, I never seem to properly conceive about how big the plants are going to get and how much space they're actually going to need. So I'm thinking about, you can't think about your garden in a static format. You kind of have to think, okay, it literally is a growing format and it's plants are going to grow and they're going to grow where there's space. So you really have to think about spacing your plants. That's always one that I had to work with and height as well, like where to put the height, right? You know? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, it talks to, again, the longevity of your garden. You are investing in perennials that you want to see be there for many years to come. And you have to sort of have a vision of what that will look like. And again, it speaks to the time in your garden because some plants require more active pruning than others in order not to take over your entire garden. Yep. Okay. So when should we get started on our design plans? I mean, I think now yeah. a good way to start your design process, and I get a lot of pushback when I recommend this, so feel free to give it to me, but is to start and compile a vision board. And so if that's something you're going to do with physical images that you clip out of magazines or print from online, that's fine. You can also use something like Pinterest. But getting clear on your vision is going to help your design process immensely. And it's also going to go back to what we talked about, those needs that we want to feel in our garden and fulfill. What are some of the the problems that people have when they're designing their gardens? What are the stumbling blocks that you see? So I think we're all impulsive creatures (laughs) to some extent. Yeah. And you can really start to foil your garden design process if you are just impulsively buying at the garden nursery. Yeah. It really doesn't help you. And I know it feels good, but try to avoid those random plant purchases. They rarely fit in with your garden and your overall design. And then I think, you know, speaking to what you just said, don't be scared. Don't feel ridiculous to put pen to paper. Get the measurements of your garden. Sketch it out on graph paper if you have some around and figure out, like you said, how big are these plants going to get? How much space do I realistically have? Our eye is a terrible measure. We rarely get those measurements right. So yep. Agreed. Sketch it out. 
I think, you know, when you're talking about like the random purchases, I think part of the problem was the supply chain the last couple of years. Like you, you go out and you're trying to find something and then you can't find it. And then, oh, that kind of maybe would work. And you're picking plants that are maybe your second or third choice. I mean, that, that happened to me where I thought I was going to, you know, it's a bad example, but it's an example. I, I wanted to get some dinosaur kale, but I couldn't get dinosaur kale. So I had to find other kale and, you know, you have to make those decisions sometimes. Yeah. And I think if you're making those decisions with annual plants, I'm less concerned when you impulsively buy a perennial that may grow to be six feet wide and eight feet tall that we're looking at really, really big ramifications. (laughs) I hear you. Anything else that you think that people mess up or create problems for people or or we covered all that? I think we're good there. Okay. So can people do this alone or do you think they need a professional? You know, yes. You can do it alone, but if you do have the budget, yes, hire a professional. I think that we all have such limited time in this day and age, and being able to communicate your needs to a professional will take some of that pressure off for the season. They can translate that into a vision. Not every professional is looking to design and install, so keep that in mind. You may just get a design you may be very happy to do all the install and the plant procuring work. So yes, I think professionals are a great idea, but also if you don't have the budget, you can do something different, invest in a course, invest in a book that you really like, and spend some time doing some learning over the winter ahead of creating your garden design for this year. Okay, so I'm sure when you're at cocktail parties, you get hit up for this all the time, but what are some tips that you have for people who are thinking of designing their own garden? Okay. I know that this one is very obvious, but the amount of people who don't do this would boggle your mind. Please, please pick plants that thrive in your light conditions. Yes, you might want that rose or that dahlia, but if you do not have a minimum of six hours of direct sunlight, they won't work. And when I talk about direct sunlight, I mean direct sunlight once the tree canopy has filled in. It's so deceiving right now. There is no tree leaf coverage. And we go outside and we're like, oh my gosh, look at my garden. It gets so much light. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't. Spoiler alert. So please, please pick the plants that are meant for the light conditions. They will just do better and you will feel better. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I want to say that even though this is not a design tip, it is going to matter. And I talk about this every show. I think almost every show, invest in your soil. Yes. Even the best design is not going to flourish if your soil is poor. Yep. No, I followed your advice with the worm castings and it made a huge difference in the vegetable garden last year. So Huge difference. Exactly. You, you convinced me. And it me. should be part of your design budget. Yep. Agreed. I'd like everyone, and you sort of touched on this as well, remember to add different textures and colors, but especially in your foliage. So almost all the plants that we put in our garden have leaves, yep. but leaves come in an immense amount of colors textures, shades, variegation. And so one way to create interest in your garden is to make sure that you have some diversity there. And, you know, even something as plain as a hosta, there's a lot of different varieties. So don't just pick the most obvious one. Take stock of what you have in your garden, what colors and textures are there, and then try to choose something that complements it, but might be different and interesting. Mm-hmm. This one is a budget line item, but does make a difference. If you can invest in irrigation. Yep. 
it is so important for plants to receive consistent moisture, and most of us are not consistent waterers. <laughs> yes, that's true. And that is the one failing I did not take into account when I designed my backyard garden is I did not put an underground irrigation system in there. So it's a bit of a problem. It does matter, especially if you maintain a second residence, a seasonal cottage, if you like to travel in the summer and you don't want to depend on you know your 16-year-old neighbor who may or may not be hungover and like not show up to water your garden. That sounds very specific, Melissa. I know. (laughs) And then I think my last tip, and this, again, is about the comparison issue. Just choose plants that evoke good emotions for you and that make you happy. Good advice. It's important. It's important to feel good in your garden. And it's important to, you know, if you love geraniums, but geraniums aren't trendy for 2023, I don't care. Yep. Agreed. Go for it. Feel great. Good advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. That was Melissa Cameron. To learn more about Melissa... Please visit thegoodseedgarden.com. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Janice Bartley is the founder of the nonprofit Foodpreneur Lab. Foodpreneur Lab is the only Canadian black woman founded and led nonprofit with a fierce national mandate to advance racial and gender equity by leveling the playing field for Canadian entrepreneurs in the food system. Why is this important? Food is the natural extension of our identities. Historically, there are many barriers to entry that exist in the food ecosystem. And that keeps some communities from fully participating in that ecosystem. In order to address these barriers, Foodpreneur Lab creates access and opens doors for foodpreneurs. Welcome to the show, Janice. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So why did you start Foodpreneur Lab? I started Foodpreneur Lab because I noticed a lack of representation from the production space and also on the retail shelves. Traditionally, what we've seen is anything, not any food product that was in the, let's say, African diaspora from Caribbean to Africa tend to be in specialty stores. So you have to go into the community to get those products. And based on the growth of food and the evolution of food that we're seeing, I just thought it was time to get those products to market, to create new and innovative experiences and to provide not only education, but conversation as well. You know, I've been in the industry sort of on the periphery for many years. I've been publishing since 2007. And my perspective Mm -hmm. is with the natural food industry. And I can see how difficult it is for new products to launch and get on the shelves. There are so many barriers, whether it's getting a distributor to get you into into the stores or having to buy shelf space. I presume those are the types of issues that you're dealing with with the people that you're working with too, right? Yes, they are. Um, So nothing's changed that's remained consistent. I think one of the glimmers of hope in this whole ecosystem is that now traditionally we've all gone to big box stores. We see these specialty markets that have been created 
to accommodate specialty foods. So we see more markets. We see more, as, as I like to say, food connoisseur markets where, all right, if you're a foodie, this is the market you should go to. Right. So working within those new streams is great, but we still have to correct some of the systemic barriers that exist within the food ecosystem as well. So what was the process of getting funding for your group? How did that go? So the government of Canada had uh, put out a request for proposal through the Black Ecosystem Fund because they recognized that the Black Entrepreneurship Fund wanted to support Black entrepreneurs within Canada because we were severely underrepresented in terms of skill sets and visibility. And in doing so, um, we had the opportunity to submit an application under the Black Ecosystem Fund to submit a pathway, because we don't like to call it program, to create an opportunity to support food entrepreneurs. Ontario is the largest food and beverage market, so it absolutely made sense with a focus on supporting black food entrepreneurs who had never had the opportunity to have access, nor did they understand the complexities within our food ecosystem. And they are extremely complex. So sort of walk us through, so what's it like working with, with an entrepreneur that has perhaps a new product that they want to get on the shelves? Like, what do you do and how does it work? So, first of all, it's extremely gratifying. And so, where it comes to, we get introduced to the ideation phase where they have these great food ideas, but they really don't understand how do I get it from out of my head onto the shelf. Right. And because this information is not easily accessible, what you tend to find is a lot of food entrepreneurs use what we call the spaghetti method. Let's throw it out there, see if it sticks, and hey, we have a winner. But the problem is that creates waste in terms of spending. So, for example, if you are not familiar with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and their regulatory requirements about labeling, then you have to go back and redo your labels. And if you want to sell outside of Ontario, it has to be in French and English. So these might sound like little things, but they're expensive. And so what we designed were two pathways that focus on entrepreneur, food entrepreneurs that are looking to launch, which right. we call Start. And then we have another nine-month pathway. Both are nine months, by the way. Uh, we have another pathway for scale, which acknowledge existing food entrepreneurs that are looking to take their business or product to the next level. So that's what we offer. And these are advisory-led paths. So we have industry expertise three decades deep that really address the issues in real time as opposed to doing a pathway, finishing, and then doubling back to address the pain points. It's done in real time. So we're addressing problems, finding solutions as they're in the business real time. And that's what kind of makes it unique. And is it a form of mentorship where you have people who've done this before who can sort of give yes. guidance? Is that what the value is? A- absolutely. The advisors, you know, they have a range of expertise from food science all the way down to packaging distribution. They live these experiences. So they fully understand what the pain points are with regard to trying to bring a food product into the market. You know, you, you mentioned scalability. And to me, that's like, I see a lot of these products come out, like somebody has a new, for example, natural product, they'll reach out for coverage in the magazine. And I wonder, like, are they able to replicate it to get it on the shelves? Are they able to get their packaging to be uniform? Like, does it look professionally done? Is it shelf stabilized? All those issues that they're probably not turning their mind to if they're going to like a farmer's market and just selling it, you know, at a bench or something along those lines. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. So to address what you said in terms of scalability, shelf life. Yeah. We introduce that to them because a lot of food entrepreneurs aren't aware of shelf life and what that is. And so we give them access to companies that do shelf life testing, you know, comparable products. And then we also um, work with food developers that will say to them, okay, we're going to change your recipe. So not only will it last six months, it will last two months. And here are the ingredients that we're going to swap out or change, make it healthier, more shelf stable. So these are the components where we educate the foodpreneurs about. So let's talk about some success stories. What are you most proud of? One, being able to launch this because this is something new, especially within our ecosystem that is targeted to black food entrepreneurs. But the products, the length and breadth, it's just mind boggling and it makes me so proud in a very good way because of the innovation. And so, you know, we've seen spices brought in from diverse cultures, you know, from the African continent, stuff we weren't even aware of. We've seen food entrepreneurs use innovative products like hibiscus. There's just a plethora of food choices that, you know, I'm really proud to introduce into the market that is going to elevate and heighten the food experience, which is what we all want. So this show is local to Toronto. If I were going to send somebody to the store to find some of these products, where would I send them? So a couple of our participants are in the major stores, for example, Yachty's, they do a pepper, jelly, mangoes, and marinades. There's in Sobeys. Nerpies, they do sauces and seasoning. They're in Farmboy and Metro. Some of them have their own storefronts, like One More uh, Cocoa, and she does this galaxy-looking bonbons as well as chocolate bars. One of participants has a restaurant called Bacchanal in Ottawa, and she does like a cranberry uh, sorrel compote as well as a sorrel chai tea and a sorrel craft drink that she can use for cocktails and mocktails. The list just goes on. So you'll see, and some of them you can order on their websites, but we're starting to see more of a larger introduction into the larger retail stores. And we're trying to make those opportunities more welcoming because that has its own challenges as well. Okay, so we have time for one last question, and that is after they go through your, your nine-month programs, whether it's you know the startup or the scale-up, what resources are available to them to continue on their journey? So currently, we are building a secondary arm which focuses on focusing and supporting the participants after they finish their pathways. One of the things I've always driven home to entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurship is continuing ed. You never, you know, just because you launch a product, it doesn't end there, especially if they're trying to scale. And if you're still trying to scale and have a business that's sustainable, you're always going to have pain points. So we've developed a secondary arm called Foodscapes. We're going to be launching more information about that, but it's complementary to our project. And the focus is to help provide continuous guidance and create more opportunities to create a sustainable food ecosystem within the diaspora. If we've engaged somebody and they're excited about reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to contact you, Janice? Visit us on www.foodpreneurlab.com. We have an Instagram at foodpreneurlab, and we also have a Facebook page. And feel free to reach out to us because we are always welcoming not only food entrepreneurs, but also industry that if they're interested in partnering with us to support this growing business and sector, we welcome that opportunity as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Alex Fink, Melissa Cameron, and Janice Bartley. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The January-February issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.